Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome back to another episode of the Ahmed Khan podcast. Today we are going to be discussing the topic of suicide. And before we even get into the discussion, it's important to note that this is a very sensitive topic. And there are a couple of disclaimers we would like to mention before we even begin the conversation. First of all, if at any time you feel that this conversation is too difficult on you, by all means, feel free to either to leave. And whenever you feel comfortable, if you feel comfortable to come back and listen to the rest of the conversation. And there are a couple suicide hotlines uh, for anybody that um, the, the, for whoever's in the Canadian region, we have a 24 hour one called the Canada Suicide Prevention Service. And their number is 833-456-4566. And for specifically, if Muslims want somebody from a, from a Muslim perspective, we have Nasiha helpline, and that's 866-627-3342. The numbers and the contact available for these will be placed in the link for the description. So please find, please look out there for more information. With that being said, I would like to introduce our speaker for today, which is Dr. Rania Awad. She is a clinical associate professor of psychiatry at the Stanford University School of Medicine, where she is the director of the Muslim Mental Health Lab and Wellness Program and director of the Diversity Clinic. She has done a number of work on the topic of Islam and mental health, and she is also the author of the article, How to Respond to Suicide in Muslim Communities. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Rania. My pleasure. So just as an introduction, um, what, what are some of the nasiha, some of the advice that you want to give us in terms of the discussion related to this topic of suicide? Well, first I'll start by saying Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam ajma'in. And to thank you for having this conversation, Ahmed, and also to have this, um, you know, sensitive uh, but important conversation and to reiterate all the things you said at the very beginning, which is that is this is a heavy topic. And if anybody does feel triggered by it, to give themselves some space and then come back and certainly to utilize the numbers that you've mentioned earlier and also you'll have on the screen. Um, it's really important to uh, make sure that we are safe in conversations like this and our loved ones as well. So my first kind of piece, um, really if it, my thoughts, my first initial thoughts on this conversation is that, it's really, really hard, but we have to remember that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has told us in the Quran that whoever saves a life, it's as though they've saved all of humanity. So I come from, I come to this conversation on suicide from a perspective of this is part of our Islamic duties to really make sure that we have conversations like this because it's not unique to any human being to actually have thoughts at some point in their life. Maybe my life isn't worth living or I'd be better off dead. It's something that comes through people's minds when it becomes a, a something we really need to turn our attention to and take major community action on is when it then becomes something a person is thinking about consistently and actually has the intention to act upon. At that point, we really need to make sure that we do our due diligence as a, as a Muslim community and as a and as for all of humanity. It's not just a Muslim issue, it's a all of humanity issue. So that's kind of my initial kind of place from where I come to this conversation. And I think that's an excellent point to start off, Dr. Anya, is um, 
can you give us some of the reasoning why people consider uh, suicide and what are some of the factors behind it? Well, people, there's a, one of the most important things to understand about anything related to mental health and suicide, of course, is within that conversation, is that it's, there's a word we use and that's called multifactorial. It means that there's multiple reasons as to why somebody may have or deal with a mental health condition or have or consider you know, uh, thoughts on suicide. So it's never one thing. And for everybody, it's very different. There are some you know, key factors that seem to come up a lot for people. When we did our research on the topic of suicide in Muslim communities, there were some very key things that kept coming up over and over again. Some of them included a lack of feeling a sense of belonging. So a thwarted sense of belonging is a very key one that shows up quite a bit in uh, suicide research across all people and definitely has shown up in the Muslim community, especially those who are in the West. In our last study, we were specifically looking at American Muslims, and that was definitely a, you know, a key factor. And you can say in the last many years, I think as many American Muslims have felt very sort of out of place um, at times. And in other instances, very much part of the fabric of the society they live in. But a thwarted sense of belonging is a key one. Another one um, is, a, is a heavy sense of burden, a burden, feeling like you're a burden on either family or society or others around you. And that's another key one as well that shows up in the Muslim community as well. Islamophobia is part of the discussion. We have to name it as such, you know, when people feel that they are being actively discriminated against for the sake of their religion. It's been a heavy one. Same with racial discrimination. Those two, religious and racial discrimination, have both shown up. And for anybody listening to this and saying, okay, those are all, I understand all those things, but that's not what, you know, that's not the reason I have felt this way or my friends that have talked to me have felt this way. I'm really just naming some of the big ones that have shown up a lot. But the reality is, there are so many reasons, right? People have difficulties in life with other people that they're living with, other loved ones, you know, they're having issues in job or they're having issues in their health, they're having issues with financially. There's so many reasons, right? Why people have struggled. Um, and so this is why I go back to that world, that word called multifactorial. There's so many different reasons why a person may consider suicide. So Dr. Anya, when you talk about the, a person's sense of belonging, can you present um, a case study, not a real life one, but an example of a, situ of a situation like that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, th I think we've written actually exactly on this very topic um, from the perspective of, uh, you know, the last, I would say here in the U.S., it's been a really rough go, the last, you know, whole administration that's passed, right? So this entire, you know, about five or more years, let's say decade, maybe even a couple of decades, right? It's been, you know, Muslims have been vilified, demonized, right? They've been very much, um, uh, whether it's implicit or explicit. And in the last, you know, many years, we had here in American policy on the books, right? A Muslim ban, for example. And there have been people that have been so directly affected by that because of who their identities are. And even if they don't, you know, people want to say, oh, it's not really a Muslim ban. The reality is we know that there was definite targeting and rhetoric that was anti-Muslim, right? So some of the case studies that we've actually have written about are real people in some of the journals, medical journals we've published in. And, um, you know, I took a, a, a case study of an individual who was a very well accomplished person. But because of all the circumstances that happened around the time of the Muslim ban and feeling um, that all of her identities 
were very much affected, right? So when we talk about lack of belonging, you know, she talks about how her four main identities, being Muslim, in her case, being an immigrant, being a woman, and being Black, were all, you know, very much um, identities that were under attack in this ban and in other policies. Despite the level of education she had, despite the level of you know giving back to society that she was giving, you know, despite her personal and societal accomplishments, none of that was sort of taken into account. It was just sort of like you are from a category of people that don't mm. belong here, right? So that's a clear sense of lack of belonging. Not that she was even imagining, but it was actually coming from policies directed at people like her. Mm. Dr. Anya, the other one that I see often is. When people um, have are in a long relationship and the relationship breaks, and especially in the early periods, they begin to say that life has no more meaning, mm -hmm. that that person was everything to my life, and now um, I don't see any reason why I should be alive. Do you mind commenting on that? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 it, this is what I meant by for many different people, it's different things that are affecting them. And um, this idea of, you know, any one person or any one job or any one identity is the only thing. And if it breaks or shatters or goes away, life isn't worth living. I mean, from a faith-based perspective, we talk about how this is exactly what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala warns us against, right? He basically says nothing is going to be forever, not even your whole life, right? Your entire life. And, but this life that's meant to be given to us is also meant to have a lot of tribulations. But those tribulations are also not to be meant to be forever. See, nothing is forever, not even the difficulties, right? They all come and go. And so when we, when I, I'll, I'll share with you, Ahmed, when I think about um, the many, many different definitions of suicide that I have learned over my years doing this work, the most, the one that has stuck with me the most is being the most powerful, speaks to exactly your question, because it basically defines suicide as a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Hmm. So when somebody says, you know, this relationship was everything to me and it's gone now. So I don't, you know, what's the point of me being here? They forget that even that issue, whatever it may be, is still temporary. And suicide, there's no coming back from it. It's a permanent solution to a temporary problem, right? We have ups and downs in our life. Things will come and go. Things will, you know, not been nothing lasts forever except for the akhirah and our islamic belief right so uh, the hereafter so you know I, I i like to put things in perspective to people and that's why therapy and counseling is so helpful because sometimes a, a person can't see it and even though their family and their friends are telling them they're not listening to their family and friend they can't hear them basically mm -hmm. but sometimes it takes that outside person who's neutral which is what a therapist is neutral and is able to look at all issues with the person and say let me let me help you see the light at the end of the tunnel. Hmm. And what, what I often find um, is, uh, especially when it comes to relationships, is uh, the the individual starts to develop anxiety, like more symptoms begin to come because of it. And um, in their mind, when people try to, um, you know, mention these Quranic ayats to them, the individual sometimes responds by saying, I believe in those ayats, but I still can't take this. Um, what does what what is a person supposed to say to an individual who's reached that state where they believe in these ayats, but trying to live a life according to them has become difficult? Yeah, 
Mm-hmm. And this is this is actually a normal kind of human condition too, where it's like I can't, I you know I can't quite you know fully live this all out. And so we tell people to take you know t- to take time. This is where it's not something, especially like you said, if it's a after a long breakup, a breakup after a long relationship, or something that's very dear to a person um, that they lost, whether it be another person or a job or a you know a house or so on and so forth. You know, we don't, we sometimes we expect people to just, you know, overcome these challenges overnight or in a few days or something like that. And we're not very kind or merciful to each other, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is really merciful to us, right? So we just remind them, you know, that Allah's mercy is vast through all of this, but ultimately we want to see them be able to come back to, right, that full place that they used to be before. So that's, you know, that's part of that is also knowing how to be, um, to give the kind of space and mercy to that other person, but also know that you don't leave them completely alone either because they mm. need that support to be able to come back as well. Mm. And so how, how how much contact should we be with, with that person who is in that state? Should there be a person checking up on them every day, every hour? How often should it be? Are you referring to somebody now who is suicidal or somebody who's just gone through like a loss and it's difficult for them? Somebody who is, I would say, borderline between the two. Look, somebody who is suicidal, there is no such thing as, okay, I'll check with them every, I'll take it upon myself to check every hour, every couple hours. Somebody who is actively suicidal, this is an emergency. It is a crisis. You cannot do this yourself. You have to let the professionals do this, which means even if I get a lot of people who say, especially, you know, young people tend to do this more than other people where, you know, a friend will confide in them that they feel like their life isn't worth living or they'll have kind of what we call suicidal talk. And they'll say this to them or they'll text it to them, for example. And and then they'll say, don't tell anyone. So their friend feels obligated, almost like they have to keep the secret because their friend told them to. And if they say it to anyone else, they feel like they're breaching their friend's confidence. But this is an emergency. There is no secret keeping and confidence keeping in emergency states. You have to help that person. And the way you help that person is actually taking it out of your hands, which is not professional hands, of putting it into the hands of the professionals, right? Mm -hmm. And this is why we have crisis response teams. And this is why it actually says in all of the warnings, you know, call 911. Even Mm -hmm. if a person's like, what, the police? Yes, if somebody's actively suicidal, the people who are trained to help, right, which are usually mental health providers, but if you can't get them to the ur- to the emergency room, then you at least can get them a welfare check or a you know, wellness check that the police will do, right? So mm-hmm. those are really important um, factors. And most people I meet to don't tend to really realize that that's what they need to be doing. They feel that they need that they'll call and they'll check up on the person, but mm-hmm. you can't be the 24 hour monitor for that person. Right. Mm-hmm. That that's an excellent point. So if there is somebody who is being suicidal, um, the number one thing would be is to let um, to, to first realize that this is an emergency, mm-hmm. and to place this in the trust of people who are qualified, and that's let right. them handle it. That's right. That that's an excellent point. Um, the the other thing that I wanted to ask is that when somebody, you know. So when somebody is on social media and whether it's social media or whether it's texting and they send a cryptic message saying um, sometimes they're very explicit in what they mean by saying 
goodbye world. Um, it was nice knowing you. Or sometimes they're implicit, but you can understand what they're implying by it. Um, what does an individual do once they've made that post? And then especially Dr. Anya, when they don't answer any of their phones, because sometimes they like to turn it off. Um, how, should, how should one react in that situation? Definitely. It's exact. Honestly, the text messages are exactly the same as someone saying it to you directly. Mm. There never, ever should you take any sort of suicidal language lightly. Even if a person says, well, this person says this all the time. It's like the boy who cried wolf. No, you don't ever take it lightly because then there's always that chance that it's that that's the time, right? That a person might actually act upon their suicidal thinking, right? And so it is always an emergency. And it means that if you see a text like that, you immediately get that person help. If you are there and nearby and are able to get directly to them to get them to the urgent care, right, or into the emergency room, or you're going to call for the welfare check to come to them, especially if they're turning off their phone and you can't get hold of them anymore, right? Mm. So, you know, it, I, this sounds like some, I'm sure there's somebody going to listen to this and say, oh, well, that seems really extreme, but so is losing someone's life. Mm. Right. So this is not something we take lightly and this is not something we, you know, oh, I'll just check on them later. They're just acting out. No, this is something we take very seriously. Mm -hmm. And I love the fact that you brought up that even with um, the story of the boy and the wolf, um, every single time we have to take it just as serious. Mm -hmm. mm, because sometimes, you know, sometimes when it happens so many times, a person might think that this time that it's just history is just repeating itself. But yes, right. And I'll tell you something, if it turns out that the person isn't, uh, you know, was, you know, you do a welfare check, or the police does a welfare check, and they say, No, no, I really didn't intend this. I'm just, you know, blowing off hot steam or whatever they're going to say. If a person is doing this repetitively, then usually these are cries for help. When we talk about suicide attempts, or even just sort of intention, like, like wording that someone says, these are usually a cry for help. There's something wrong. Mm -hmm. Like, I always think about how there is something wrong there. A person wouldn't say that just because, right? There's something going on there. So either the person is not well in other aspects of their life and they need help there too. Mm -hmm. So at least it's a bridge to get them that kind of help, right? Or that's kind of attention that's needed. And there's also a question of why is that attention needed? Like what's missing and lacking there? Something's not right. So this is you know, where we say, if a person is doing this repetitively, or even if they do it just once, honestly, it means there's something else that's needed. And maybe you as the friend or loved one or family member can get that person help, right? That's mm -hmm. the door. But oftentimes in our families, in our communities, we kind of brush these people off or we say like, oh, they're just you know, being dramatic or big, you know, why can't they just you know, be a big boy about it or whatever, big girl, right? Mm -hmm. It's just, why are they doing this? Well, the question should really be, what can I do to help how they're feeling and they're not able to maybe fully put words to it. But the very fact that there was a suicide attempt or suicidal thinking or talk means there's something else that's terribly wrong. Hmm. Right? And um, Dr. Rania, there are, when individuals are in this state, many of them like to, like you, like, like you mentioned, keep it to themselves or maybe privately to one close friend. However, they don't feel comfortable letting their parents know whom they live with. Um, what is your message to those people, uh, to, to those people about um, the importance of speaking openly to people like your parents or your siblings, like people who live with you on a day-to-day -day basis, rather than just being 
closed off and just uh, telling a handful of people. That's right. I always think about how, and we do this. I mean, I think all people do this. Maybe I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't overestimate there, but it's the kind of thing where, you know, we think that maybe our friends are going to listen and hear us out better, but then you have to think about how, but do your friends have the kind of help and power that maybe parents or elders in your family can, or even your siblings for that matter, right? Your, your blood relatives will always be your blood relatives regardless of exactly who they are right how what category you want to put them in of good bad supportive helpful etc but the point is they're always going to be your blood relatives and so it's the kind of thing we have to remind each other that uh, often when people go to peers directly peer level they're also going they have just as much power as you right mm. which may not be a whole lot more than you so you think about when you need help, usually you go to someone who has more than you have, right? When you're in need of help. So that's how I sometimes tell people, even if they say to me, I don't want to tell them, they're not helpful. They're not supportive. They'll never listen to this thing. But then I say to them, but do they ever, but do they really want you dead? Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it kind of just, uh, sometimes we have to take a step back and really think about what we're saying here, like with the the magnitude of what we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Anya, earlier you talked about one of the reasons why people um, have suicidal thoughts is this belief that they are a burden upon people. Mm-hmm. Um, do you mind expanding upon this and uh, maybe delivering a message to those people who think, you know, I, I, I don't want to be a burden on my family or my friends. I don't want to tell them anything. So I'm just going to keep this inside me and let it boil. And uh, maybe perhaps they, they think it is better that they do um, engage in this act. My message to anyone who's thinking that way is to know that you are important and your life is worth living. And the people who you leave behind, their lives will never be the same afterwards. You may think that what you're doing or, or, you know, in this way, you are relieving their burden, which you don't realize is how much more burden you're putting upon them. Because suicide survivors, which are the loved ones of people who have died by suicide, often talk about how they, their life is just never, ever going to be the same again. There's often a lot of guilt, a lot of regret, a lot of hurt, a lot of confusion, um, and just a lot of sense of, but didn't that person know that we love them too? Didn't that person know to have more selflessness for the rest of us too? So even though in one's mind, especially, and by the way, the feeling of lack of feeling like a burden is actually one of the, one of the symptoms that we see that comes up when people are very depressed, when they're kind of in a depressive state of thinking, I often tell people that's not you talking, that's your depression talking, Mm. right? Because when we think that way, sometimes our thoughts are very convoluted. And in that convolution, sometimes they seem like they make sense, but they don't actually, because then you have to think about the lost survivors, the people who are going to feel that even friends, even sometimes, you know, people who are deeply affected by the loss of somebody who's died by suicide, who was like three or four you know, degrees out of that circle. But, you know, maybe they played ball with them or maybe they knew them from school or maybe they worked with them, you know, at some point. And it affects everybody so differently and on such a deep level. Um, it is not. And, and sometimes I say to folks, if you really want to understand what will happen, maybe have a sense of all this work we do around um, suicide prevention and suicide awareness. And also on, uh, you know, there's walks that happen every year about 
for, for lost survivors, people who have lost loved ones to suicide. And when you just hear their stories and sit with them and listen to them, you realize, you know, you might think now that you're taking a burden away from others by not sharing this and just sort of, you know, even removing your own self out of the picture. But the reality is it is, you know, the exponentially more burdensome. It's actually not at all what you're thinking. So I just want to make sure that that's, you know, understood as well, but it takes some time to understand that. And you only really understand that if you're able to understand and um, be in the shoes or hear the stories of lost survivors. Hmm. And Dr. Anya, you are, you are currently in the Bay Area. Um, we have the famous Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, where um, a number of people um, have taken their lives, but a number of those individuals have given that have survived have given a testimony saying that the moment that they jumped, they regretted it. Um, do you mind expanding upon this topic of regret? Sure. The topic of regret is definitely one that comes up quite a bit in this entire discussion. You remember how I defined one of the best definitions I heard is, is you know, that it's a, that suicide is a um, permanent solution to a temporary problem. I think what happens is exactly that, which is sort of a sense of, um, you know, sometimes whatever the issues are, you come to realize that actually there, there is a way to get through them beyond this very permanent way, right? And that's part of what's happening with the sense of regret. And yes, you're absolutely right. The, the, the vast majority of suicide survivors will tell you that there is definitely a sense of regret afterwards because there is a realization that there could be other ways or also a, you know, an intense fear of what life might look like afterwards, right? So that's important to, um, you know, consider in all of this. And more important than any of this is really to understand how we get to this point in the first place and making sure that if a person even gets close to this, let alone reaches this point, that help was needed and probably was needed well before this point, mm -hmm. right? So I, I keep saying that over and over and over again. You can't really talk about the talk of, topic of suicide without talking, excuse me, without talking about the importance of mental health and the importance of just wellness, like making sure we're getting all of our community members and loved ones the kind of help they need way before we even have this conversation around suicide and suicidal thinking. Hmm. So um, Dr. Rani, I wanna give you a thought experiment. Um, let's say an individual has these suicidal tendencies and they decide to call the authorities and the authorities work with them and they diagnose the individual as um, not necessarily suicidal, but very depressed or just they're, they're not in a good state. And now they're living back in at home within the same lifestyle. How does a friend um, respond to a situation like that? How does a friend uh, help the individual cope or try to see the light at the end of the tunnel? Well, this is a reminder to, and I appreciate the friend wanting to help, of course. And yes, there's a place for friends. But the way you described this sounds to me like the person may have been had a, you know, maybe have been checked out or had like a wellness check, but didn't yeah. actually, it wasn't actually clear that there was full mm -hmm. help given because they weren't frankly suicidal, right? Mm -hmm. So 
but I didn't hear anything yet about them seeing a therapist or professional. So the very, very first thing a friend can do is make sure that happens, right? Mm -hmm. And um, sometimes there are barriers to this. Who's the right person to see? How do I get this covered? How do I, you know, get get to, um, you know, cross that? Sometimes just fear, even just fear of, you know, seeing somebody and having to tell them all your, you know, all your mm -hmm. inner deeper secrets. So, so all of that friends can help kind of make that happen. And I've seen so many people take the step to get help and to get, you know, see a therapist or could just get help, mental health help, because it was a friend actually that helped them see how important it was to do that and even help them sometimes make those very appointments with, with their permission, of course. But, mm -hmm. you know, uh, sometimes when a person is so depressed or even so anxious, it's so hard to take the next step. They know they need to take the next step, but they just can't fully. So a friend who's doing better than them at that moment with permission, could help them make those appointments, you know, leave the voicemails on the therapist's phones until they find the right person, you know, kind of survey the net and interview people to figure out who's the right person. You know, um, these are all things friends can do. And again, it all goes back to making sure that they're being seen by the right person who's trained to see them, that a friend alone can't and shouldn't try to take on the load of mental health. People who train to be in this field have trained for years to do this work and a friend mm -hmm. has it, right? So, Dr. Anya, what's your message to individuals who um, understand that they are suicidal, but they're hesitant to call the authorities? Because I can imagine that there are many people who are very hesitant. Um, is, there, is there a message that you have for them? Yeah, if a person, if an individual is feeling suicidal, they realize that about themselves, it doesn't have to be directly to authorities either. If they're not, you know, if it's not like an emergency right now, but they have... Uh, emergency right now is in to say they're, they're they have a, a intent and plan to end their life right now. That's an emergency, right? That does require, right, going to the emergency rooms we talked about or wellness check by the police. But then, if they don't have that, then what they have is essentially suicidal thinking. They're kind of having these thoughts. This is why the crisis lines are there, because they're very uh, helpful people who are trained on the other end of the lines to pick up the phone 24 seven, right? And be able to talk them through it, talk them all the way through it and also give them some resources mm -hmm. and tell them what to do next. Cause you could say, this is how I'm feeling now, what do I do, right? And they're able to tell them what to do, right? Mm -hmm. So I think those are really important. This is why you, we said those resources at the very beginning, we'll repeat them again at the very end of this talk. Um, but that's why those crisis lines are there. They're not, in a, they're not a substitution for an emergency situation, right? That's where you still call 911 or go to the emergency room. But they're very helpful when it's not an emergency, mm. but there's still those suicidal thinking and thoughts and what do I do next and how do I cope, right? Yes, and I think that's an excellent point that you've mentioned that if it's a direct emergency where, you, where an individual feels like they're going to be doing it, um, 911 is the correct number. The other numbers are meant more so if there's somebody you need to talk to um, and explain your problems, correct? That's right. In a crisis, yes. Now, the last thing I wanted to talk about, Dr. Anya, which your article discussed, was this topic of postvention, of when um, a suicide has occurred and the community has become traumatized by it. Um, do you mind explaining what postvention is? Yes, definitely. Postvention is, it sounds like a fancy word, but if you think about it, it's the opposite of prevention. Uh, and prevention, as you probably can tell, right, is your kind of preventing suicide work. We talk about suicide prevention, really stopping and helping all of the aspects that would prevent a suicide from happening. 
intervention, just so I'm listing all the terminology here, intervention is while somebody is currently suicidal. So that's you and I, Ahmed, we've been talking about this for the last, you know, several minutes here. We've been talking about what happens when a person is suicidal right now. How do you intervene, whether it's the emergency room, the 911, or the crisis response lines, right? Postvention is in the unfortunate aftermath that a suicide has taken place. And now there are people, right? Lost survivors, people left behind who are trying to pick up all the pieces, right? There's a lot of grief and even in some cases trauma um, from what's just happened. So we call that postvention. It's a crisis response in the aftermath of a suicide. And yes, we wrote an article, uh, which is actually one of a series of articles that we are intending to write on. Um, it's available on muslimmatters.org where we went through the do's and don'ts after a suicide occurs. And we listed out 10, you know, uh, main kind of do's and don'ts after a, a suicide occurs. And I can go through them with you just very briefly on what are some of the main things that I think are very important. The very first one is to not sensationalize and not, not to romanticize a suicide. And what I mean by that is, you know, um, this we've seen this unfortunately in a, in a recent kind of you know national tragedy that happened with a, a suicide that went a suicide murder situation actually that went viral like it just was everywhere everyone was talking about it and unfortunately we're reposting a suicide note that was left behind by the deceased and so this was very unfortunate because it was very much sensationalized and it was very much, um, you know, reposting over and over again, something that was very triggering and very traumatic for so many people. We worry, of course, that what happens in something very sensationalized like that is, um, you know, copycat suicides. We worry about other people getting that note who themselves are vulnerable and seeing that as a way out to and then acting upon it. And unfortunately, there were multiple copycats, attempt, suicide attempts afterwards from that incident. So we, we try really hard. This is why postvention response is actually a very important thing to build into our Muslim communities. And we'll talk briefly at the end of here of how Maristan, the organization that um, I'm part of and that we do this, we actually offer these trainings on proper suicide prevention, intervention, and postvention response in the Muslim community so that we prevent things like copycat suicides or suicide contagion is the fancy word of that um, from happening, right? Mm -hmm. So not to sensationalize, not to romanticize. We also talk about how it's really important that if it's spoken about, we just talk about facts. We don't dwell on details, like how exactly did the person die? Because if, mm -hmm. a, if, a, if a Muslim person or any person died by suicide, now there are um, you know, duties and rights that are owed to the dead person that are not appropriate to breach, right? So it's really important, even as Muslims, we have this within our deen that we don't backlight, that we don't gossip, that we don't, you know, um, you know, you know, go into all these. It's not our business, right? We don't go into all these nitty gritty ideas. And also because as you're talking about this, there may be other people in the room who are listening or who are listening or, or reading what you're writing, who are very vulnerable to this too, and you don't know who's vulnerable and who isn't. So you might not meaning to actually trigger somebody else more by going into all these specifics, right? Mm. A third thing we talk about is to not speculate on the spiritual implications. Mm. This is really important, especially as somebody who's, you know, as a Dean figure, but also somebody who's a mental health professional. And I talk about this, you know, very much from a Dean perspective, because I want to be very clear with you. We didn't say it so far. 
in our conversation today, Ahmed, but I'm not, I don't mince words. It's very clear. Islam stands on suicide is that suicide is haram. There, there's no, we're not going to like mince words and try to find other explanations to it. It's clear in the Quran. It's clear in the Hadith. What I do want to emphasize and what I do want to say is after an individual, a person, so that's a, a theory, right? Theoretically, right? What we understand about suicide is that Allah told us it is haram. Do not take your own life, right? But when we go to the individual level, when a person, an individual dies by suicide, it is not our responsibility or permission or ability to judge their spiritual state. We don't know. We don't know whether the person was sinful or not. We don't know whether they ended up in heaven or hell. We don't know anything about their akhirah. In fact, we don't even know our own endings to know anybody else's, right? And so I say this um, very strongly, okay? That we don't, and especially as when people say, well, why is that haram? The answer to that is because we don't know in the last moments of that person's life, what was their state of thinking? That it's really important to understand that, you know, that person in the very last few moments of their life, we don't know what state of thinking they were in. We don't know their cognition level. We don't know um, if they were actually in their correct state of thinking. And Islam uses, uh, we know for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala teaches us, right, that there are um, exceptions to things. So when a person is not in their right state of thinking, whether that's due to mental illness, whether that's due to lack of sanity, whether that's due to substances and cognition going, you, basically that is up to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to judge whether that person is going to be held accountable or not held accountable for the way their life had ended. And so it's very important that we don't speculate very important because I hear this all the time. All oh, that person, you know, died by suicide, therefore they're in hell. How on earth do you know? <laughs> right? You don't know your own ending to know their ending, subhanAllah. So it's really important that we don't do this. And this is not what I'm saying here is about individuals and their spiritual states, not about whether or not suicide is haram, because that's clear, right? And people confuse these things all the time. And because they confuse these things all the time, unfortunately, in the community, we also have people who will say things like, well, that person doesn't, you don't owe them a janazah prayer or funeral prayer. You don't need to, you know, pray upon them or do dua for them. It's like, where did that come from? That's not part of our deen at all. In fact, every Muslim, if they died as a Muslim, they are owed their final rights, which is ghusl, funeral prayer, burial, and prayer upon them. And so, you know, who is doing that funeral prayer? There's debate and, you know, discussion on that, right? It does, you know, could be another Muslim in the community who's not the Imam himself, right? There's some discussion about who's going to lead prayer that's based on how the Prophet dealt with a suicide that happened in his timing, in his era, right? Where he had other Sahaba lead the prayer, not himself. Because to show the gravity of the sin and the issue here, because he knew what was happening with that specific individual and wanted to make a stance that suicide is something that is not permitted and it is haram. But in terms of the funeral prayer, it got prayed. The janazah, right? The, the, the washing of the body, it was washed. The burying of it, the person was buried. The praying upon, yes, and the Prophet himself made dua for the person. So it's really important that we don't confuse and convolute this whole entire story, which unfortunately I find quite common in our communities. 
um, the rest of the article, Ahmed, you know, there, there's, I think I talked mm -hmm. about maybe four or five aspects right now. The rest are there, inshallah, I welcome others to um, look at them. They, are, they have aspects, and it's helpful to look at the article itself, because, for example, there are aspects where we talk about what to say and what not to say, how to count, count, console a person who's lost a loved one to suicide, what to say and what not to say, right? Some of those tables that we've put there are very helpful. Mm because people kind of feel like they're stuck like they don't know what to say exactly mm -hmm. but they want to say something you know often people who are close to the deceased will blame themselves or blame others right for that loss and it's really important to especially right in the aftermath um to make sure the focus is actually not on blame but rather on healing right mm -hmm. healing and picking up community um, and, and, you know, bringing people together as opposed to pointing fingers and causing um, more, more trauma, right, to the mm -hmm. community. Processing emotions. So many of us do what you were mentioning earlier, you just turn inward and they don't say anything to anyone, but they carry this huge weight for so long. I've met people who've lost friends to suicide and it's been, in those say for years, they've never said a word to anyone else, but they've carried almost like this huge weight with them. Mm -hmm. You know, they haven't been able to move forward in other relationships or in other friendships or so on um, and it's really important to give space to ourselves our loved ones and others and sometimes it takes especially the more difficult the death was and more difficult the trauma was the longer it's going to take to really fully allow our emotions to heal so to give ourselves that grace and that mm -hmm. space right to do so mm -hmm. and you know then we talk just very briefly at the end about you know, making sure we check in on each other making sure we were supportive for each other, making sure people know that they can and should seek out kind of that, um, if it helps to see kind of a spiritual and a religious counselor, uh, you know, whether it's an imam figure or a stava figure or somebody who can give that spiritual peace and also professional, like sometimes in our community, we, we go straight to all the Dean figures, but we don't talk about the professionals who've trained for so long and are the ones who actually know the, the know-how of what to do in these mm. circumstances. So I hope that's all um, helpful. And the last thing I'll say to this is, and this is also how we ended that article, is really to remind people, suicide is 100% preventable. Unlike other mental illnesses, when you know, we're having an interview about any other podcast here on, about any other kind of uh, mental illness, right? I would say, unfortunately, there's always, you know, there's there some mental illnesses that are not going to be, um, they're not going to go away. They're chronic and there's something a person has to deal with forever actually. And we work on treatments and, and medications and treatment plans and all this, but suicide, suicide is 100% preventable. And that's why it's important. It's 100% preventable and 100% treatable. And that's where I feel, this is where I started where Allah subhanahu wa says, right? To save a life is like you save all of humanity. It is literally our Islamic duty, a fard kifaya, right? A communal obligation to have within our community people who are trained in suicide prevention, intervention, postvention, mm -hmm. from a Muslim perspective, right? From an Islamic perspective, but also from that evidence-based kind of research medical perspective. Like we need to take all the good that we receive from all the cutting edge modern research on the topic, but also fully grounded in that Islamic training, which is what we do at Maristan. That's the work we do actually at the Stanford Muslim Mental Health Lab, uh, Muslim Mental Health and Islamic Psychology Lab and at Maristan. This is exactly the work we do because it really is our farat kifaya. It's a communal obligation. And it has to be that every single community has people that are trained, leaders, 
um, that have this training and know what to do to prevent loss of life. And then when the unfortunate circumstance, if and when a loss mm. of life happens, they know what to do to help and prevent others loss mm. of lives, right? Thank you, Dr. Anya, for that. So just as a recap, some of the things that we touched upon is that suicide is a multifaceted, uh, it's a, the reasons are multifaceted. Um, there are some, like you mentioned, which are more prominent, such as that there's no sense of belonging and feeling like a burden upon people. Um, but there are other reasons as well. And we have to be proactive rather than reactive. And the one thing I personally took from this, Dr. Anya, is the importance of seeking authority. Um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, Ask the people of knowledge if you don't know. Um, and there have been a number of people who speak on this topic, a number of wonderful people. But from all of the people that um, I've witnessed personally, I felt that you are somebody who um, I wholeheartedly trusted as somebody who has a vast amount of experience, both from a practical perspective, but also from an academic theoretical perspective, which I found was very beneficial. And so seeking authorities, um, recognizing when it's an emergency, you call 911, whereas if a person is, whereas if it's not an emergency, but a person still wants somebody to speak to, they seek the hotline, but the hotline should not be replaced in the case of an emergency with the authorities, which is 911. And um, we will place all of the resources again on here. But is there, are there any last words you want to share, Dr. Rania, maybe about the work that you're doing or a final message? Sure, inshallah. Yes, definitely. I would love for people to know about uh, the work we're doing at Maristan and hopefully support it. Um, we actually have a campaign that's very important to talk about this since we talked about this entire topic. This year, we're running a campaign called the 500 Imams Campaign. And the reason we're doing that at Maristan is because we want before 2022 or by 2022 to have at least 500 Imams, Ustadas, and, and eventually we want all kind of Muslim leaders in their communities to be trained on the topic of suicide specifically. So folks can reach out to Maricent if they want you know, this training to come to their hometown. We're starting to roll these out um, in different places across the US and even internationally um, and across the border as well. And I also want to say that um, we definitely need people to support Support this project. So if someone's listening to this and feels inspired and wants to support and make sure that their imam or their leaders have the ability to take this, they can actually financially support the campaign campaign to be able to, um, you know, sponsor individuals to get trained. It's a full day certification training. So at the end of it, and I, I think about how in the US, you know, the latest studies shows that it's about 3000 uh, masajid or mosques in the U.S. And I think about, great, in five years, I want all three masajid trained. You know, like their needs, this is a farad kifad. Like we really need to make sure this is across the U.S. Um, because unfortunately, the thing we didn't talk about today is unfortunately, I should say this in our closing message, unfortunately, our latest research that was published in JAMA, the Journal of American Medical Association, um, you know, showed that when we compared Muslim to other faith groups or non-faith groups like atheists and agnostics when we looked at their um, suicide attempts not not deaths by suicide but their actual attempts they were twice the rate of other faiths and that's really intense and it's really um speaks to i think you know the very difficult years these last many years have been for muslim communities but it's really important to understand like what does that mean because alhamdulillah 
the deaths by suicide are still the lowest of all people when you look at Muslims, which means there's something unique to Islam and Muslims that really prevents a person from going all the way to ending their life by suicide. But when the rates of attempts are starting to go up like that so much more than other, we worry, because of course, every attempt can potentially result in a death, right? So we worry about that trend kind of reversing itself in the current era that we're in. And um, this is why the campaign is so important and this work is really important. So I do hope this has been enlightening for some folks. I hope it's inspired other folks. If people feel that like they want to contribute or do something, you know, check us out at maristan.org and check out the campaign. It's maristan.org backslash 500 imams. Hmm. That sounds amazing, Dr. Anya. And we hope by doing this, this can be the beginning of starting a number of discussions on this topic with qualified individuals. Um, and the more conversations we have, the better it is. So with that, we will conclude. Um, we will again place all the resources in the description and they will also be on the screen as well. Um, and uh, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Anya. Jazakallah uh, khair. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.